the two kind of fundamental pillars of what's called lean from the Toyota production system is one, continuous improvement, which is everything that we've talked about here. Continuous improvement is essentially the same as reducing non-value. But the other pillar is respect for people. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Why do businesses exist? Well, we believe that businesses exist to meet needs, solve problems, and serve people. And that's why it's so devastating sometimes when a leader looks at their P&L and looks at how their team and organization is structured and says, man, we are spending so much money, so much energy, and so much time doing things that don't relate to solving problems, meeting needs, or serving people. And that's what we would call waste. And it's one of the things that we've been focusing on a lot within our business, but also within the Path for Growth community as a whole and all the people that we work with that run and own businesses is what does it look like to create a culture within your organization that focuses on creating and generating value, which is what the customer pays for, and eliminating and reducing waste. And really, the spearhead of that focus and that rally cry within our business and the businesses that we serve has been Zach Estes. Zach is our COO. He has a background in manufacturing, and that's one of the reasons why he's so passionate about this, because that's an area where he's seen this practically come to life in the most visceral and tangible way. But one of the things that you'll see clearly in this conversation today is that there's so many manufacturing principles that can absolutely be adopted and applied to everything that you do, regardless of industry or stage of business. And so it's with that that we wanted to give you a very practical, detailed conversation on what it looks like to reduce waste and create value. Okay, I think it would be first best to define our terms. So let's first start with what is value? Yeah, I always try to really, really get specific about what value is and what it isn't. And so I'm going to use the definition. I think we should use the definition that value is specifically what the customer pays for and nothing else. So whenever we're talking about value, particularly for this conversation and just like regarding operationalization and operations of a business and business, like let's call value specifically what the customer pays for and nothing else. And there's some people whose feathers are about to get ruffled. There's some people <laughs> whose feathers are already ruffled. I think it's important to call out on Zach's behalf. We are not saying that other work is not valuable. We are just choosing to define value as what the customer pays for. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, and, and it's even worth saying there are things that can return or generate a return on your investment. And those things would be valuable. But whenever we're talking about value, we're just going to specifically call that what the customer pays for. So there are things that you can do that aren't related to value, what the customer pays for, that can generate a return that you can invest in and can generate return. But just know that that's a distinction. That's a, that's a different thing. That's a different area of work. We're going to be talking about value being the scope of specifically, precisely, what the customer pays for. Okay, so let's use the example that you and I are most familiar with. What is value at Path for Growth? 
Yeah. So we clearly sell a coaching call and team trainings and experiences. Those are the types of things that people are wanting to get a return from. They're paying money for those things. A coaching call session with their coach, team training for us to come in and invest into their team with ownership mentality or leadership development, any of those topics. Those are the things that people are specifically paying for. And within that, it's good to make a distinction that we're already alluding to. What people are not technically paying for is a calendar invite, the coach's prep time before the call, uh, what the coach does immediately after the call to take notes for the next session. They're paying for the actual experience that is the coaching call. That's the value that they're paying for. It doesn't mean that those other things aren't important. They're absolutely important and therefore valuable. It just means that as a team, we're starting to get really black and white clear about the customer is paying for that call. Explain why it's essential for our team to look through that lens of what exactly precisely is the customer paying for? Yeah, this question right here is the thing that gets me fired up the most because it's what can confuse businesses so quickly. It's what can confuse employees and team members so quickly. Business generates revenue by customers paying, period, right? So then the question is, well, what is a customer paying for? And that's why we've clarified value as specifically what the customer is paying for. If you start to make assumptions about what the customer is paying for, and maybe they're, you know, we need to do all of these things because it, it is what the customer wants, then you started getting into a little bit of a danger zone. You start doing things that the customer is not actually even paying for and they don't value it. But meanwhile, you as the business are paying for that thing to be done or hiring people to manage that work where maybe the customer is not even paying for it. So there's just this risk of understanding, okay, what is specifically the customer paying us for? And how can we make sure that we create and deliver upon that value in an efficient and an effective manner? I think as a customer example of ours, I mean, we could literally look at every company that we work with, but one that makes this really clear is someone like Tim Marquez, right? He owns a best industrial and it's like they sell industrial pipe fitting. They could have a world-class process, but the customer probably doesn't care that much about the world-class process unless they get their pipe fitting, right? Like that's, so the, the value there is selling and delivering the pipe fitting to the customer. Is that correct? That's correct. And I would say the pipe fitting itself. If they get a pipe fitting and the pipe fitting fails or it's defective, that is not what the customer's paying for, right? They want a working, functional product that's communicating a promise and they want to receive that promise since they gave the hard-earned money for it. Another example, just to bring up a a kind of a service-based example, would be SEG out of Brooklyn, New York, they're doing interior design and like high end, very nice interior design. You know, there's a ton of when, particularly around like high end service based industries, there's a ton of back and forth communication, getting to know the customer, understanding what they want. But really what that customer is paying for at the end of the day is a design. And there's a little bit of like a question of, okay, well, we have to understand this person to get to the final result of the design that's made just for them. It's custom made, but you have to understand that the customer is not paying you to understand them. They are paying you for the final design. That's what they're paying you for. And so you want to be as efficient and as effective at 
getting to that end result and delivering upon the promise as quickly as possible, but making sure that you actually accomplish it. Otherwise, you risk continuously understanding the customer and never actually delivering value. Which the customer ultimately is not served by. Right, right. If you (laughs) understand them to death, but don't actually deliver in a punctual way, that's not actually value to them. Yeah. Interior designers are not counselors. (laughs) Man, that would be a good thing to put on the wall, (laughs) just to remind everyone what the customer is paying Mm -hmm. for. Okay, so in that example, where I also think of Kent Muir, they do just incredible like hardscape landscaping work, G2G in Pennsylvania. Um, and I've, I've seen some of their projects before. It's just unreal, the, the scope of what they do and what they're able to perform in, in a very specific amount of time. Is it fair to say that value is completing the project in alignment with the customer's expectations? Because otherwise, would it be a defect, right? Is that fair to think about both the Yessie G example and also the Kim Muir G to G example that way? Yeah, sure. So a customer often is purchasing something based on the two resources, time and money. And man, that's so important because we we often say, especially when you're product-based or you're delivering something very tangible, even in a landscaping business like that, you're delivering a tangible result that people can touch and feel and see on time and on budget is what people think about. It's like, oh, that's a successful project. We delivered that product well. Well, the reason that would be successful is because we promised to deliver the value that the customer expected at a certain time period, at a certain time estimation that they agreed upon, that they liked that they wanted and and valued and at a price that they valued. They said, yes, that's worth my money at that price. You know, if you just 5X the price, then they're going to say, no, I don't value that anymore. Not for that much. That's right. Because there are arenas in which subjectivity plays a role, right? Like you could deliver me a design on time and on budget But if it doesn't align with my taste because you didn't understand my taste, then it's ultimately not value, correct? 100%. Yep. Okay. So again, to go back to the definition, value is what the customer pays for. That's what we're starting with. Now, what is the... uh, what is the counter to value or what is the opposite of value? Yeah, so people, I've noticed people uh, have recently been getting frustrated at my definition of this. Everything else is not value so uh, or waste. A Toyota likes to call, they, they have a word called muda, which is in English, that's just waste. But I like to kind of distinguish the difference between value and not value being values specifically what the customer pays for. And then it's easy to then just reference every and categorize everything else is not that. If it's not what the customer's paying for, then it's really, really clear and easy to say, okay, well, that's that's clear. We know that that's not value. It doesn't mean it can't generate a return for the business, but we need to be really, really specific that it's not what the customer's paying for. So why are we doing this? Okay. And the term that they would use in manufacturing would be waste, correct? Right. Yep. So anything that is not value-added activity is considered waste. Yes? Yes, that's correct. I would say so many people get immediately defensive when they hear this because I'm about to say a lot of things that people are going to be like, well, I, I'm valuable. I don't, you know, I, I create value for the organization. I'm, I'm a valuable piece of this business. All of those things, again, we're distinguishing between value and not value. We're not saying something's not valuable. We're not saying activity's not valuable. 
Well, a great, a great example. Yeah, it's a great example. I mean, you and I do things that a large part of our role is what we would put in the waste category, right? If we're using this definition. Now, we can either choose to get offended by that or say, okay, well, how can we reduce waste and increase value? But there's also some waste that is, and this is kind of alluding to what we're going to talk about here in just a second. The goal is never, I don't think at least, to eliminate waste completely. The goal is to reduce waste to the degree that we are all able. But it's not something to be offended by. It's just something almost to be curious about. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I would say the goal isn't to eliminate waste is because you can't. You can't eliminate waste. And so setting a goal that you can't ever accomplish isn't helpful. That's pointless. But the reason you would want to reduce it is because it doesn't contribute to the creation and delivery of value. And that is what the customer is paying for. So kind of going back to like value and non-value, if the customer is paying for value, then the business is paying for everything else. That's right. They're paying, let's use a path for growth example. Let's look at our one-on-one coaching product. They're paying for the one-on-one coaching call and the other things that are part of the membership associated with uh, what they bought. And everything else is overhead, correct? It's waste. It's things that we are now paying for. The customer has not signed up. Because when we show them our product benefit sheet, right, whenever we're doing a sales call with the customer, we're not showing them, oh, you're going to get a calendar invite and you're going to get a meeting that we complete twice a week to talk about your experience. And It's like they don't care about that. They care about my coaching call. And, and so I think that that's really helpful to look through the lens of what is the customer paying for? And therefore, on the other side of that, what is the business paying for? Yeah, that's right. Here's what I would say. Whenever you think about not value and that the business is paying for that thing, you should be thinking, we should be thinking, okay, we're putting our money on that that non-value is going to generate a return. So as an example, all of leadership, leadership internally to a business is not value. The customer is not directly paying us to lead and develop and pour into our team members. But we are betting, we are putting our bet on that if we do that, we can create and deliver value better for our customers. So that's an example of like, okay, well, so we do one-on-one team member meetings. We have a staff meeting. We have a full team meeting, you know, every two weeks. We get our team members together in person as a virtual business every so often. And those are bets that we're taking on as an expense. Customers aren't paying for that, that we're saying this will help increase the creation and delivery value for our customers. We believe that. And so it's a bet that we're taking. That's right. It's a, and it's hopefully, if you're structuring your business properly, I think, or this is healthy growth, it's intentional waste versus unintentional waste. Like, I mean, we're not telling the customer, hey, just so you know, part of what you're paying for one-on-one coaching is going to pay for us to have a killer Christmas party. Like, and I just want to make sure you understand that when it's like, no, because they're like, that's not what I'm paying for. I'm paying for coaching. But we're looking at Christmas and saying, man, it probably behooves the business and the customer for us to make an investment around Christmas time into our team. And so therefore that's a non-value added activity that we're going to make a bet on intentionally. But then we start to ask, okay, how could we, what could we do with that Christmas time to ensure that that bet has a return on it? 
that it's not just it's not just unintentional waste that it's like okay we celebrated christmas and there was no return for the team member or the customer at all so what are some examples let's let's call it waste creep what are some examples of unintentional waste creep that you've seen either can get into our business or we've seen show up in other businesses i think when you start to try new things that's that's the biggest probably danger zone honestly and it's not to we're not saying don't try new things that's not what we're saying right it's just hey notice that okay we like to use the words coulds shoulds and commitments coulds are things that we can do let's let's explore the possibilities that are at our feet and think about what all we could do shoulds are man based on our business our team size all of the things, it makes sense that we should be doing this. That doesn't mean we're going to do it. It just makes sense that we should be doing this. If not us, then who type of thing. But then take it one step further and say, okay, are we going to commit to this? Because if we commit to this, then there's going to be a lot of maintenance going on. There's going to be future maintenance and maintenance does not create and deliver value. It, it takes care of something, right? So then you could even look through the lens of okay, I play the role of one-on-one coach sometimes, or, you know, maybe someone on Kent's team plays the role of hardscape worker sometimes. Why not just work 12 hours a day hardscaping or one-on-one coaching? Or if you're, uh, you know, on Herb's team, right, doing excavating work, right? Why not work all hours of the day doing that? And it's because, okay, well, because that's not how human beings function. And so it's recognizing you're a human being, so therefore you're not going to eliminate waste totally. But then if we are looking through this lens of value versus waste, I can just look in the mirror personally and say, how am I utilizing the time that I'm not one-on-one coaching? And if the time during the day that I'm not one-on-one coaching, I'm scrolling social media the whole time, unintentional waste. It's crap, right? It's awful. And and it's like, it's not doing anything to benefit the customer or the business at all. If I'm using that time to journal, to take notes, to talk with our team, to prepare for my next coaching call, we would, looking at the definitions, we would still call that waste, but I would refer to it as an intentional waste that is really doing a good job of making the bet that, man, there's a way that the customer will one day benefit from this time. So in manufacturing, let's just use a generic machine. There's a machine that creates value for a customer. It doesn't even deliver value. Let's just say it creates value, creates value for a customer. So it's taking a raw material and turning into a a more finished product, something that the customer wants and desires and values. Okay, so you have this machine. When it's creating value, it's up, it's running. It's, it's what we would call uptime. The alternative is downtime. And downtime means the machine is not doing what it was created to do. The machine is not serving the customer. It's not creating value. It's down, it's not running. Okay, so machines turned off, that's downtime. Machines turned on, that's uptime. We're creating value. Well, there's forms of downtime that are healthier than others. As an example, if you just run a machine consistently for 24-7 and never do regularly scheduled planned maintenance on it, that thing will fail. Atrophy will happen and it will break down and then you have unplanned downtime. And that's not even a person. That's not even a human being. That's the machine. Exactly. 
That's right. So that thing is going to fail and break down. And then the problem is you don't know where it broke down. You don't know what happened to it. You don't know what parts need to be replaced. It could be two hours until it's back up and running, or it could be two weeks until it's back up and running. You know, you have no, you got to diagnose it. You got to go through a whole process. Okay, pause real quick. Let, let's add the terminology to that that you just used, because I don't want people to miss that. Unplanned downtime. Just everyone picture those two words in your head and then picture equals bad, right? <laughs> Unplanned downtime equals bad. Okay, keep going. So what is planned downtime then? Well, we're going to say, okay, we know that we need some sort of rhythm and schedule to take care of this machine. We need to oil it. We need to maybe replace some parts that get some wear and tear on them over time. And we're going to do that once a week or maybe even daily, daily to some tiny extent, once a week to some extent, once a month to some extent, and maybe some larger overhauls once a year or so. But that's all planned downtime. And we, the business, again, that's not value work. That's maintenance. The customer isn't paying you to do that. We, the business, are going to pay for that so that we can keep the machine up and running, so that we can keep creating value. Otherwise, the risk is we're going to have unplanned downtime at some point. It's It's not if, it's when. And the parallels to the human experience are endless. I mean, it's when you don't attend to your soul, your health, your family, and you just focus strictly on value, productivity, and you become obsessed. Well, my pastor says obsession smothers wisdom. You don't take any downtime proactively. You take downtime reactively. And man, going to canceling proactively, in my experience, is a lot more efficient than going reactively. Because going reactively, you now have to disentangle all this stuff, diagnose all this stuff, figure out what's going on, repair all this stuff, get in order what needs to be in order. If you can do it proactively and budget for it and create margin for it, planned downtime, then you're setting yourself up to be long-term productive. And I think that that would connect to the two words we're really passionate about, which is healthy growth. That's right. Yeah. I. You know, everything we're talking about right now, I think particularly as we use that machine example, I think everyone can say, oh yeah, that makes sense. If I eat McDonald's for every meal, 10 years down the road, probably sooner than that, you're going to have a heart attack and you're going to be in the hospital. And that's going to be unplanned to downtime. You were not, you didn't know when that was going to happen. You just know that it was going to happen. Or you could take care of yourself each and every day. And I could take care of myself each and every day and know that, okay, I'm doing some maintenance here for myself. I'm the things that my body actually values. Uh, I need to, I need to tweak and consider it so that it continues to be healthy. Otherwise I'm going to have unplanned downtime. One of the notes that I made for myself prior to this conversation was I want us to keep our eyes open for biblical examples of this. And it's like, man, there's a pretty prime biblical example. Like in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? Value, immense, outrageous value. And it's like, he worked for six days, right? He, I mean, and, and the value he generated was all of creation, which is just bonkers, right? So it's important for us to remember we are at best secondary creators. But then on the back end of that, the seventh day, he rested. Sounds to me, it's not that God necessarily needed it. Sounds to me like he wanted to set an example and say, this is the way you want to do things. You want to create outrageous, immense, unprecedented value and then schedule rest because you can't do that forever. 
You know, something that stands out here that's really interesting is I think there's a lot of organizations that what we're talking about right now will really click with probably the people, honestly, that see the P&L of the organization, right? Like the people that have insight into the finances of the organization will hear this and they'll be so passionate about this because anyone that regularly reviews a P&L sees all these lines that represent overhead and they're like, oh my gosh, this business costs so much money. And now they've got a, they've got a word for it because they would say that word is waste. I personally believe that it can be really dangerous for that knowledge and that perspective to only stay with the owner or the core leadership team. Because I I think that the minute you start using the terminology of waste or even walking around seeing the waste in your organization, which is there, by the way, you can become this really cold, harsh, cruel, uh, unempathetic leader. So what is the proper response to this conversation as a leader to create a culture around this. Yeah. Let's talk about what's normal. What's normal is for people to not understand, even leaders, even business owners, to not understand the distinction between value and not value. Again, what the customers pay for and what the customers don't pay for, meaning they pay for it, the business pays for it if the customers aren't paying for it. If your team knew that, then it's a whole lot more easier to get everyone on board for saying, hey, your job is, I, I may have hired you to, let's say, let's say a marketer as an example, or some sort of manager or something. And, and let's say it's totally not value. They're, they're not a part of the creation. Maybe they're in research or something along those lines. For them to know that, hey, my, my role is completely non-value. I don't directly contribute to the creation or delivery of value. So what does that mean? Well, my leader and my organization doesn't want me just managing this work and day in and day out. What they want me to do is become more efficient and effective at getting the result that I was hired to do or to eliminate it altogether. That would be better for the organization if I could automate this, uh, this amount of work, this, this work that I was tasked with managing. If I could automate that or show a business case for it not being necessary and not indirectly contributing to the creation delivery value, then that would be good for the business. The business should know that. (laughs) Like that would be profitable for the business. We would reduce the cost there. Instead, what happens is that someone gets hired because there's a fire and now we need this person to put out that fire. We use those words, but what ends up happening is that person manages that fire that person just makes sure that fire keeps kind of burning and they're taking care of it because that's what their job is. An employee, rightfully so, could get really insecure about, well, if I, if I actually solve this problem, what does that mean for my job? Where do I, where do I go then? And so I, I'm not going to do what's in the best interest of the business because that's not in my best interest. Whereas they could have had alignment with leadership and said, okay, like, no, our goal here is to reduce waste. Our goal here is to reduce non-value. Anything that isn't necessary, we need to work towards reducing it. And if that means you don't have a job here, that won't be the case. There's ways in which the organization can grow and flow so that there's room on the bus for folks. It makes sense to me that that could spur paranoia or fear in someone whenever you're saying, okay, so you're telling me to go about eliminating my job. What? There's a couple ways you could come at this. But the thing that I would say is if someone 
went about the business of doing that in my organization, I would be like, put that person on the leadership team as fast as possible. Like, don't you dare. You're telling me they figured out how to systemize and create processes and operationalize and delegate and automate and eliminate an entire role in our business so that they can attribute more of their time to either doing more of that in other places in the business or creating value in new and better ways. I'm like, man, give that person a new role and give that person a raise because that's awesome, right? And so if you're the type of hungry person that you have this little poke of fear inside you, I would tell you, take the step of faith and just see what happens. Because my bet is that you're going to be all right. I I, I promise you, if you are in my organization, you're going to be all right. But then the second thing I would say is I think what you're talking about here is really at the crux of what it looks like to create an ownership mentality on, on your team. Because an ownership mentality is really rooted around, I just want people that care as much as I do. And I can see that. What you're actually saying is, I just want people to care as much about the customer as I do, right? Because the customer is the thing that keeps us in business. And that's what we ultimately want people to care about. And I think if we can educate people to look through this lens, which is actually the lens that the customer is looking through, we give them the ability to act like an owner. Yeah. Dead on. You know, the type of person who acts on this advice, the the employee that acts on this advice and maybe doesn't find alignment in their business. And so they look up and, and they've eliminated the need for their role. And their leadership says something along the lines of, great, so I guess we'll lay you off or thanks for what you did here, but it's time, it's time for you to go. That's probably the best news that you could get. Go find somewhere that like have the little bit of entrepreneurial entrepreneurship inside of you that says, oh, yeah, if I'm not seen as someone who can generate a return on the investment that the business is making into me, then like go find somewhere that does and show them the business case that you made at your former business. Otherwise, use it as a form of leadership. Show the whole organization how you can do this, how you are doing it and why it benefits the business. Maybe there's a form of leading up there that that would be really healthy and impactful. I think it's just a, a good leadership idea that everyone, including the CEO, should be on a mission to work themselves out of a job. And the the way that you do that is by reducing waste, automating, delegating, eliminating, and going through this really deeply intentional process and not allowing your ego to get in the way. Okay, just to give people a picture. I'd love to know one or two businesses that you can think of that really exemplify what it looks like to be really committed to reducing waste. Like, are there organizations that you really admire on this front? Yes. One in particular, I bet you could guess it. This is the example that everyone uses for leadership. Who am I talking about? You're talking about Chick-fil-A, Zach. Yes, right. Ding, ding. Okay, so Chick-fil-A. Why did I use them as an example that's so focused on reducing non-value? So a couple things. You could go super, super just process-oriented here in this conversation and say, okay, great. We're going to reduce waste. We're going to reduce non-value. Ready, go. And then you run the risk of just being metric-driven, just being about the numbers, and not caring about the people that are contributing to that mission. 
The reason I say that is because the two kind of fundamental pillars of what's called lean from the Toyota production system is one, continuous improvement, which is everything that we've talked about here. Continuous improvement is essentially the same as reducing non-value. But the other pillar is respect for people. And so the whole idea there is that intrinsically within us, we are here to help someone else. We are here to love on one another. And we do that through our employees. We do that through our customers. And so how do we take both of those reins, respect for people and continuous improvement, and apply those principles and practices? And I think Chick-fil-A does an, an amazing job at that. Everyone sees it. They're extremely efficient. You go to any of them and you're never in a drive through line long at all. Meanwhile, they have 15-year-old boys and girls in there just absolutely crushing it, saying, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, no, ma'am, no, sir. And just getting to develop and learn. And they're not selecting from a pool of special kids. They're just using a form of leadership to pour into these kids so that and teaching them standards and operations and procedures so that they can best serve the customer, so that they can best create and deliver value in a way that's human, in a way that's loving, in a way that's giving the customer what they want and that's in their best interest. You said something really interesting in there that I don't even think you meant to say. You said it's what they do is really remarkable and everyone sees it. And I think you're, I, I don't think I know you're really passionate about those three words. Everyone sees it. Can you explain why that is an important piece of all of this? Yeah, it's kind of one of the first things you got to do. If you don't know something exists, and you've never seen it before, it's really hard to imagine it. And so what I always encourage people to do whenever we first start talking about value and not value is just go be a customer somewhere. You've probably done that before. You've probably been at a restaurant or a coffee shop or anything and be a customer. And don't, don't just be a customer. Stop and like kind of remove yourself from the situation. Be like, okay, I'm a customer. They're a business. What's happening right now? Am I frustrated? Am I really delighted? Are people being respectful? Are people kind of like urgently trying to get me what I want in exchange for my hard-earned money? Or are people being rude? Like how, what's this customer interaction here? That's a form of observation. If you're sitting there able to view something, not as, hey, I'm the customer. What, like, give me my chicken sandwich. What, what do y'all, what's taking y'all so long? Just like slow down, back up and try to like view yourself in a third person situation and, Experience what that's like, observe it and and see what the business is doing or not doing for that matter. Chick-fil-A isn't perfect and they can get better and they can reduce a lot of non-value. But that's that's a good example that I would do is go to a restaurant, go to Chick-fil-A and just observe. You don't even have to order anything. Just watch other customers, observe what's going on and see it for yourself and just take notes. Say, hmm, that's interesting. wonder why they did that. Oh, that probably wasn't to standard uh, or, or that was to standard or that, man, that was amazing. Can you believe that 15 year old kid just ran around the parking lot to get that customer another napkin? The other thing that stood out to me with those words, everyone sees it is the idea of go and see, which you're talking about there, but also three words that you've coached our team on a lot, which is make work visible. And we, we've been talking to our customers a lot about this. People often ask, inquire, marvel at, man, how is it that these 15-year-olds at Chick-fil-A are so upbeat? They're so engaged. Like they, they not only do they do a good job, they actually look like they're enjoying doing a good job. 
I think there's a lot wrapped into that. But I think one of the things that's wrapped into that is even the people that aren't directly handing the chicken sandwich to the customer in their vehicle can connect the dots of here's how what I'm doing will in probably under three minutes result in a car out there getting a chicken sandwich. And I think that's incredibly gratifying, right? Is for people to see, okay, here's how my day-to-day activities and tasks connect to an overarching bigger picture that ultimately results in the customer getting value. Does that resonate? Oh, yeah. And I would just say they they so simply know what winning looks like. And they have a scoreboard and they can clearly see just because they're physically there like, okay, I'm in the kitchen right across the room through that window. There's customers receiving the thing that I just made, you know, minutes ago. But I would also say they know they have a standard for here's what's acceptable and here's what's not acceptable. We don't serve cold fries. The customer doesn't want cold fries. So there's a little bit of a, of a game that I get to play that's in the best interest of the customer. So let's play it. Let's go all out. Pat Langione talks about three signs of a miserable job and it's immeasurement, irrelevance, and anonymity. I think what you're alluding to there is immeasurement. I also think it's irrelevance. It's like, is what I'm doing, does it even matter? And there's a lot of people that they don't know this is why they're miserable, but this is why they're miserable because they have no clue why what they're doing even matters. And so I think an unsustainable approach is just to say, okay, top level leader, it's your job to make sure everyone knows how what they're doing matters. I think at the leadership level, It's the job of the organization's leaders to create systems and processes in which people can see, in which people's work matters and people can see how it matters, but then to challenge the people on the front lines to say, how does your job matter? Talk me through how your job matters as it relates to the customer receiving value, receiving what they pay for. So imagine you're the leader and you're going to the frontline team member and you just asked a frontline team member, how does your job matter? Let me, let me say a couple of things. One, you're a, front, you're a leader going and observing. You are seeing and hearing from the frontline what actually matters or why this job matters. Number two, now the employee is taking ownership over their role and understanding, okay, it either does matter or they're going to give answers that are frankly BS and and don't apply and don't actually serve the customer. And you can hear that. You can observe that as a leader and say, okay, maybe this isn't actually contributing to the creation of delivery value. Maybe this role, the way in which we've set up this organization, this process, the system doesn't do that. So there's just a couple of things there that you said that I was like, oh, you went and saw, you listened to the front lines, the people creating and delivering the value and you heard and see ownership mentality from a frontline team member, those two things are just present in that situation. Absolutely. And I think all of this highlights another biblical example that work is a blessing when looked at through the proper lens, right? Like God gave us work before sin entered the world. And I personally believe that there's going to be work in heaven because otherwise who's going to run all the Chick-fil-A's? And so I think it's really important to say, okay, there's value in work, period. And if it's ever miserable, that's something less than what the kingdom intends. And this is kingdom work, I think, that we're doing to 
make sure that there's straight lines between the work people are doing and the way that it serves people. It's a little bit of an aside, but I think it's worth sharing. I don't know if you and I have talked about this. You and I have become friends with a couple of people that either still are or were members of the kind of high-level executive team at Chick-fil-A and maybe even knew Truett Cathy personally, which is really cool. One of those gentlemen once told me a story about how their executive team got to spend two days with Jim Collins. And Jim Collins does this with a very limited number of people and it's very hyper-intentional time. And he said that it was one of the most powerful moments he's ever had in leadership whenever Jim Collins looked at the leadership team and said, I want you to listen to me real quick. He said, Chick-fil-A has to exist. You have to be successful in what you're doing because if you are not successful in what you're doing, there will be such a gaping hole in the marketplace that we won't know what to do. He's like, you are the only people that do what you do as well as you do it. So you have to do it. I get chill. I mean, I wasn't even there and I get chills telling this story, right? And that's so cool. And I think there's, he wasn't talking about chicken there. Let's be very clear. There's, I, I personally believe there's actually better chicken options. There's, there, there's no one in the world that is as good at operationalizing service in such a humane way. And I mean, we do trainings like this to teams around the country and ask people for an example all over. And without a shadow of a doubt, this is always the first name that people say. And it's really difficult to think of a second answer. I mean, what an incredible hallmark example. And none of us look at Chick-fil-A and say, oh, they're so efficient. They've deprioritized people. I have never, I have never once heard that critique of Chick-fil-A. So I think one of the pushbacks of leaders, honestly, wired like myself can be like, oh, you're just going to turn us into a robotic machine. You're trying to make us into your assembly line. And I think whenever you start to feel that little nudge, you should look at Chick-fil-A and ask if they look anything like an assembly line, because I think it's one of the most human-centric organizations in the world. Yeah. Just to encourage people, I say, I used the analogy of reins earlier, continuous improvement and respect for people. Imagine holding both of those reins. If you're actually riding a horse and you just pull on one rein, what do you do? You just go in circles. You just go in circles. But if you hold both reins at a certain tension, you'll go straight and you'll get a direction and you, and you can go where you want to go. But if you just pull on one of those, if you just pull on continuous improvement and not respect for people, you drop that rein, you'll run in circles and you'll turn into a, a robotic machine. On the other end, if you just pull respect for people, you won't be a profitable business. You won't actually help anyone. They'll just be nice and friendly and succumbing to whatever emotions and feelings today's society has and tomorrow you'll be different. So hold them both and serve the best interest of your customers, serve the best interest of your team members, serve the best interest of society for that matter. Because yeah, we need Chick-fil-A and we probably need your business too. That's right. It's, it's such a crime that some of the most inefficient organizations I've ever interacted with are nonprofits. It's like, oh my gosh, like your cause is so important and you're so passionate about it. And dadgummit, why can we not get organized? Like you will be, you could serve 10x the number of people that you're currently serving if you would just get this thing in order and get your act together. But it's also, I mean, one of the most inspiring things is a nonprofit well-organized, right? Because they're already pulling on 
the the reign of humanity and passion and people in, to the nth degree, right? That's all of them. And God bless them for that. But then when they choose to say, we're going to pull just as hard on that other reign, oh my gosh, it's just incredible. Yeah, I think that's an inspiring example. Okay, let's now look at the opposite side. You can name names at your own peril if you would like to organizations, companies, or even specific experiences that you've had that really epitomize unintentional waste or waste creeping into an organization and and really characterizing the organization. I want to use examples that people are used to observing. And and the reason is because you can you can go see for yourself. I haven't been to the airport in a little while. TSA, goodness gracious, talk about an absolute waste on a organization on the customer itself. Now you would say their job is to protect and and keep safety within an airport and on the airplanes, all that good stuff. Cool. I think there's so much waiting and defects associated with TSA that it's it's something no one's almost no one is happy to go through unless there's no line. If you show up at four in the morning and you're like, cool, awesome. It's almost a it's almost a reprieve to go through TSA then because you're so used to waiting. But that's just an example. The the reason I use that example is because often in major airports, there's this dramatically long line that could take hours to get through. And waiting is a form of something that the customer does not value. We don't we don't value waiting. A kind of a pseudo example I'll use on this is Amazon. Amazon, whenever they, and this isn't to say that they're like operationally not a good organization. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the standard used to be that, oh, you could get your product in one to four to six to eight weeks. You could get your product then. And that was the acceptable standard. They reduced that non-value. We don't value waiting. They reduced that non-value to two days with Amazon Prime. And that's like, you know, we get excited about that ex- experience, although that's not even the thing that we're getting. We wouldn't get excited if a FedEx truck just showed up two weeks and didn't bring me a product that I ordered. Like we want the product, but the reduction in waste is really what we're going for. That's why we get excited at TSA when there's no line because it's like, oh, thank God that we don't have to waste our time sitting in this line waiting to go through the security check. When we have the budget, I think we should commission an investigative podcast into (laughs) subcultures within the TSA because, I mean, I, I travel a lot and there are some TSA security checkpoints through airports where it's not only is it actually pretty efficient, the people are pretty happy and therefore the customer being the passenger is also pretty happy and everyone is secure as well. So they're accomplishing what they're setting out to accomplish uh, versus there's others. And, and you know it's cultural because it's paternal, right? Culture is the shared values and behaviors of the team. There's some airports that I go to two and a half hours early because I know not only are they going to have a bad attitude, it's going to be so slow. And it kind of makes you wonder, does the bad attitude create the slow or does the slow create the bad attitude? And the answer is probably yes, because it becomes this just devolving sinister cycle of when you have a bad attitude, you treat people poorly. Well, then the passengers that are coming through you are going to treat you poorly, which is going to make you frown some more. Now you're moving slower. You're lethargic. You're not even wanting to come to work in the morning, much less follow through on some useless, irrelevant process that someone told you to do. 
It's awful, right? And I can't imagine. I mean, the turnover rate at those airports must just be horrible because it just looks like the most soul-sucking job on the planet, right? But then what's wild is, like I said, there's some airports where they got it down pretty good. And, and they're actually doing things that are different than the previous example that I talked about. And I feel like we should just look at that and say, man, something's going on there that should be so inspiring for leaders because it means that even within a behemoth organization like the TSA, there's some leader or some group of people that got together and said, we can make this better. It would be better if, and then had the guts to tweak and tinker and make changes. And, and I know you're passionate about this. I know Olivia on our team is also really passionate about this and really good at this. What's so interesting is it's tweak and tinker. That's what I think, especially as it relates to the government agency example. We think sometimes it's got to be massive sweeping overhaul. And it's like, man, maybe to eliminate waste or reduce waste a lot, yes, but you could make it better by just turning a couple knobs. That's right. And so thinking about TSA, let's imagine that if they didn't exist, then your, your ticket to the airplane would be cheaper. And so what happens there is that the, you know, you don't go to the airport to go through security. You go to the airport to arrive somewhere sooner than it would have taken you to, to drive or go by boat or whatever else. Like you, you go to get on a flight to get somewhere that you want to go. That's what you're paying for that flight from here to there. Safely. Sure. Safely. But, but you want to get there. If you got there and, and you got a band aid on the way there, like, you probably wouldn't care. You want to get there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but if the wing fell off, <laughs> yeah. you'd probably care. Right? <laughs> totally, right. That You would not value uh, not getting to your destination, for sure. And so the, the reason I say this, because TSA does not create or deliver any value, period. That doesn't mean you can't do it better. That doesn't mean you can't reduce it. That doesn't mean you can't make it a more enjoyable experience. That doesn't mean uh, you can't figure out new technological ways to speed up the process to keep people moving so that it's it's not such a burden on the folks that have to go through it. Rather, it can be just a part of the process and an acceptable standard for now, although society will always want better. And that's kind of a, a nice push for us to continuously get better. Statements like the one you just said, TSA does not generate any value ever, is what in Texas we would say gives people a burr in their saddle, right? <laughs> but it's important there to go back to the definition of value is what is the customer paying for? And I don't like whenever I buy an airplane ticket, I'm not saying, oh, I'm so excited to be paying for that 30 minute wait in line before the flight to Hawaii, right? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that's a necessary hindrance, right? Now to get there safely, right? I'm also not paying for us to eliminate TSA altogether and have it be an absolute clown show. I'm paying for the amount of waste there is to be reduced as much as possible. And, and so I think calling out organizations like that just for the sake of calling them out is not constructive. I think what is constructive is, like you said, it's really hard to envision something you can't see. There are some pretty solid examples of waste out there, right? So go and see those and then take on the biblical idea of before you take out the speck in someone else's eye, pull out the log in your own and say, number one, what is the waste that's in my life? And then number two, what is the waste that's in my organization? Because, man, I'll tell you, 
I have literally been with business owners before. I hope I haven't been one, but I, I mean, I wouldn't put it past me that I've heard them complain about organizations like the TSA or going to the DMV or wasteful organizations. I'm like, have you experienced what it's like to be a customer in your organization? Because I have, and it's a freaking nightmare. Like I'm waiting forever. It may be worse than the TSA. And so it would be good for all of us to look in the mirror and say, I am a waste generating creature running a waste generating business. Where is it under my scope of authority? That's right. I don't know if we want to talk about service and showmanship, but just as another example that may be less obvious, the steward or the stewardess on an airplane, you're not actually paying for a Coke or some peanuts or whatever else on an airplane. That's not what you're paying. Like you can go get that at a grocery store or a gas, like you're paying for the flight. And so they're not creating or delivering any value. They are providing the form of showmanship. That's, that's kind of what that person's doing is that they're contributing to the delivery of the value, but they're not creating any value. That's not why you're paying for it. That's not what you showed up to the airplane for. That's interesting though, because have you seen it whenever they don't serve the peanuts? <laughs> exactly. I mean, 100%. People get really freaking upset that they're not getting their bag of peanuts on their $300 flight. So is that something related to expectation setting or what's going on there? Yeah, and there's reduction of waste. And so imagine you're on a plane and all you're doing is waiting to get to your destination. Okay, so that's one scenario. The other scenario is that you're being given a wonderful first class experience where someone brings you a hot towel and a a chef made meal and some bubbly champagne. And you're no longer like waiting to get to your destination. Technically you are, but now you're like enjoying this experience. You're still technically paying to get to the destination. You're paying more for some showmanship, but that's not why you didn't show up on the plane to have this nice over expensive meal and champagne, you showed up to go somewhere. Like that's the, that's the airplane ticket. That's what you're paying for. That's true. And we say, I mean, we don't think Southwest Airlines is in the peanut industry. Like no one's claiming that. Yeah. It's like we get people where they want to go, but to use the language we were talking about earlier, we're making a strategic bet that if we, being the business, not the customer, invest in a bunch of peanuts, then it's going to pay off in the long term versus if we didn't. That's right. Yeah. The customer's not paying for it because they're paying for the result that they get from using your product. They're paying for the benefit. They're paying to get somewhere, right? And if you put a line item on their checkout that said, would you like to pay the optional peanut fee? Who's actually going to check yes to that? It's like, no, no, no one. Now, the minute they order a drink that they're paying for, you have now entered in another line of business and the value you're serving is that cocktail. That's right. Yep. That's a different thing. Yeah. And it's worth noting that, right? It's like, okay, we're no longer selling a flight to someone. We're selling a beverage or we're selling a meal or we're, you know, that's, that's the form of value that they're getting in that moment. And so I like the word that you use, which is showmanship. Showmanship is things that amplify the experience, but it is not directly what the customer pays for, which I, people that are wired like me can get really scared about saying like, oh, we're not paying, like, if we're not careful, we're going to eliminate all the things that make this special. Because I believe a lot in that Maya Angelou idea of like, people forget what you told them, they remember the way you made them feel. 
And it's like, how do we make them feel? But are we calling that showmanship because that's not the value that they're paying for? What's going on there? And I I think Southwest is an appropriate example. I love Southwest as an organization. I think overall, they are an operationally very sound organization. I mean, they ran into a a freaking nightmare with scheduling issues just a handful of weeks ago now. I mean, it was an absolute disaster. An organizational international scale, it was absolutely botched. You think anyone on those planes that day with however many thousands of flights that had to get canceled, rescheduled, postponed, all that, you think anyone was saying, I just love that their flight attendants tell jokes I just love that their flight attendants wrap the safety brick. No one was saying that, right? Because that's showmanship that amplifies value. But if you don't provide the value, it's like people aren't, turns out, very interested in your showmanship. Yeah. And I would say service is the creation of value and showmanship contributes to the delivery of value. And so if you think about showmanship, you know, you use the example of Southwest, you can use a uh, bourbon steak. I'll use bourbon steak. What is it, on the 30, 34th floor of JW Marriott in Nashville? It's an expensive restaurant to go to. It's very, very nice. If you went and they have amazing servers and a serving team and bartenders, they have an amazing staff. If you went there and never got food, you would say, why did I show up to a restaurant? I didn't get the food. You go to a restaurant to get food. That's the value that you're paying for. The way in which that food is delivered is showmanship. And that's what can increase and increase the price a lot of a lot of times. Or this is an example of observation. Whenever you experience poor service at a restaurant, most people tend to tip less. When you experience amazing showmanship, uh, really respectful, professional, courteous showmanship at a restaurant, you tend to tip more. The general population tends to tip more. So just thinking about the way in which like, okay, that's not the thing that we're showing up to get from this restaurant. And it's such a blessing. It can, it can make or break the experience of receiving that value. We're not saying it's not important. We're just saying it's not what the customer pays for. And the customer's making a decision to pay. And in some ways, we don't really view it this way at a restaurant, but that's a negotiation that's happening whenever they're looking at the menu. And so I think that that's actually a very helpful example as it relates to SCG's company, who's in high-end interior design, or G2G, which is in high-end landscape or service. I think our business, where it's like we see the industry standard and we're trying to go so far above and beyond that people are willing to pay a luxury price essentially for this. And that's what bourbon steak is, right? It's like you're looking at the menu like that meal is $150. If there's just good service and no food, you're leaving frustrated, right? Because you're, you're not getting anything that you paid for. You're just getting showmanship. But even if you get food and it's not $150 worth of food in your estimation, then you're still leaving upset, which is ultimately not in the best interest of the business. And so this is where the subjective nature of expectations comes into play is you want to provide exactly $150 worth of quality food uh, and, and bring it their way. Correct? Yeah, I would say that's right. That's also the reason why everyone is not your customer. That's right. Not everyone is your customer. And that's important because you don't try to reach everyone. Not everyone values this product or service the way other people value it. And that's that's a really clear distinction. At the risk of getting too far into the weeds on this, one of the eight types of waste is overwork. 
right? So the idea there is that you can overdo something that you've now, essentially, the idea, if we were to look at it through a manufacturing lens, uh, my understanding of it is like, we have essentially created a $200 meal that they're paying $150 for. And I really struggle with that manufacturing parallel to Uh, the type of work we do or any of the organizations we've talked about because it's like we all principally believe and I know you do too in the idea of exceeding expectations. So how do you merge those two ideas of overwork versus exceeding expectations and how does waste weave into all of this? Yeah, so in manufacturing, a customer will order something to spec and spec is what the customer wants. Nothing more. If, If something is not stated on there, then the customer doesn't care. And spec is just short for specification, meaning here, like when a, when a customer orders something, let's say from an aerospace industry manufacturer, they're going to say, here's what we need. If we don't get this, we're not, we're not paying you. I don't care if you deliver it to us. We're not going to receive it and we're not going to pay for it because that's not what we ordered. It's not to spec. So there's a standard that we're paying for. I think in the marketplace, particularly in the consumer marketplace, there's still a spec. And the question, there's kind of this dance that happens between the business and the consumer of saying, okay, we think we hear what you're saying. Let's see if we can make it and go back and forth. And the marketplace responds. You'll, you'll uh, see sales go up or you'll see that, yes, that is, that is what we wanted. That is what uh, we wanted to buy. You'll probably never be perfect on that because as time goes on, the spec changes people want different things. You know, I wanted a coffee this morning, but I wanted a black tea last night. So, you know, I didn't want coffee last night. So there's just like this, as the marketplace goes, so goes business. And so it's just worth noting, like two spec is kind of the standard that you're wanting to deliver your customer value on. So imagine a scenario in which the spec is defined and you've heard your customer, your customer says, I want this. And you do more to it. Maybe you paint it, but they don't care if it's painted. Maybe you add a cool angle or put your logo on it. They don't, they don't care that your logo's on it. They just want the product. They just want the benefit from the product. And so all of that work that you could say it's part of the product, so to speak, maybe it's just over-processing to what, to what you were saying. Maybe it's just doing more than what the customer actually asked for. And so there's definitely a line there somewhere of like exceeding expectations. But I think before you exceed expectations, you got to meet expectations. (laughs) And so if like you're late on your delivery, or if you send a defect or ship defects, you're not even meeting the original expectation. And I think it's important to remember as you're talking through that, I just think through the Chick-fil-A example again, it's like they're not setting out to say, oh my gosh, we're going to charge everyone $7 for a chicken sandwich and then give them a $9 chicken sandwich. It's like, that's a great strategy for Chick-fil-A to go out of business, right? So that's where showmanship comes into play. Is like, we're going to give them a $6 chicken sandwich and that way we are meeting their expectations. But the way that we do the work, the, the efficiency, the smile on our face, the saying my pleasure, the running them down because they forgot a sauce or something like that, all of that is the area where we get to go, their core value is second mile service, right? We get to go above and beyond in the way that we serve or deliver that value to the customer. Okay, because I don't want us to get overly complex in all of this, I thought this would be just a good starting episode to kind of dive into this topic some. 
if people were only to hear and understand one thing from you in the way that we're talking about this idea of value and waste and value creation, what is the one thing you want to make sure everyone that listens to this hears? I think going back to the beginning and really just beginning to wrestle with defining everything in your business. Is it value or is it not value? Is the customer directly paying for this? Or the alternative is we are. The business is paying for this. That's probably the best starting point and probably the best incentive for you to feel non-value. If you recognize that you're paying for this, the business is paying for this, the ownership team, anyone who's incentivized by the bottom line, if you're paying for this, there's a little bit of a initial incentive to say, let's do something about this. We, pro- we, we could probably reduce this. So that's probably the initial place that I'd ask people to start. What should people's hope be with regard to this? Like, what's your hope with regard to this? You spend a lot of time talking to our organization, other organizations about this. What's your hope? My gut and my heart just immediately goes to a better stewardship of resources. We are given by our customers, by God, by other people's trust and involvement to steward people's lives, people's work, people's time, people's money. And so if we can reduce the things that don't contribute to the creation and delivery of value, if we can reduce those things, then we're going to be better stewards. And if we can do that, then we can reinvest that profit back into the business to create and deliver more value and make more of an impact. And so that's where my mind goes like, yeah, sure, you could fatten your wallet, but we know that business owners who make a profit reinvest back into their business and grow their business. They, they want to make a bigger and better impact on the economy, on the marketplace, on their communities, on the world as a whole. And so a better stewardship of their resources is, is really the end game for, it's not even the end game. It's just the daily practice. It's just like what we do. It's how you live life. How can I steward these resources more healthily? That's what I love about lean culture is it's continuous, never-ending improvement. There is no got it. It's getting it. There is no figured it out. It's figuring it out. There is no grown. It's growing. And I think the word stewardship that you used is so good because it's like, did you do the best you could with what I gave you? Did you maximize it? Did you create a return on it? And the challenge that I would give to everyone is whatever you do with regard to this topic as it relates to your business, do not make this centralized around you right? You have failed or we have failed as an organization. Me and you, Zach, have failed as an organization if the only people that are passionate about this topic is us. And thankfully, that's not the case. We've got a team of incredible people, but really what we always say is language creates culture. And so every single person on our team understands what is value, what is waste, what it means that we're saying, like, We're not saying it's not valuable whenever you do those things. We're just saying it's not what the customer pays for. And it gives everyone such a healthy perspective and empowers them to do work that they deem as meaningful. And that's so much of what we want for organizations around the country. And we've seen it work across industries. I think that also plays in with the free workshop that we're doing coming up on February 13th. Can you talk a little bit, because the topic of that is operationalizing business, can you talk a little bit about how this topic of reducing waste ties into the topic of operationalization? Yeah, so the 
I'm going to go uh, historical for a second and say the name Taichi Ono. So Taichi Ono is the father of the Toyota production system. And one of his most famous and most used quotes is that there can be no improvement when there is no standard. There can be no improvement when there is no standard because you create variable results if there's no standard because there's variable standards. So if you have a standard, then you can capitalize on that. You can train your whole team to it. You can execute off of a shared understanding of what the standard uh, produces, and then you can make it better because you have something to reference back to. And so operationalization is a four-step process that we teach here at Path for Growth. And it's first to standardize something. You have a standard. It's in your head, likely. So the second step is to document that standard. Third step is to evaluate the execution of that standard. And then the fourth step is to then improve that standard after you've evaluated it. And so having a standard means, okay, you can take something and improve upon it. If you have five people not operating off of standards, then they're generating variable results. They're doing their own thing and they're not going to grow the business as a whole. Uh, They're just going to grow their own little circle if they're even operating off of their own standard for that matter. So yeah, that's how value and standards all tie back to operationalization of a business. Yeah, we're so excited about that workshop. It's specifically for leaders that own or run a business because we're going to be talking about how to lead the charge on creating a culture that really values operationalization in all the essential functions of your business. So your roles, your meetings, and your projects. If you want to join us at that workshop, it's February 13th at 1 Central Time. Uh, Zach's going to be there and he's going to do some teaching on his side of things. I'll be there. We're going to have the folks from Trainual there as well, which is so cool because that is truly the platform that we use to systemize operationalization within our company. And we've helped bring that platform into other companies that we work with and they've been doing the same thing. So we're going to show y'all how we use that platform to make systems and processes visible to our entire team and also iterable to our entire team. It's going to be a really powerful workshop. We'd love for you to be there. It's from 1 to 2.30 Central Time on February 13th, and we'll put the link in the show notes to sign up. Uh, Zach, uh, one final challenge or word of encouragement to everyone that's listening today. See it, name it, and do something about it. Go observe, go look, go find waste, go find value, call it what it is, and then do something about it create an impact, and then reduce the non-value in your organization. Very good. Thank you, sir. Later. Well, I'm grateful to Zach for his perspective and his insight on this topic. And I'm pumped that he's going to be sharing more of it on the workshop that's coming up on February 13th. So I hope that you're planning to join us there because that's really going to give you a four-step process for making sure that your business is operating in a manner that is streamlined and efficient, in a manner that is operationalized. So we hope to see you there on February 13th. Real quick, before we go, many of you know because you're a part of it, that we send out to a growing community of people an email every single Wednesday with written content. Now, I really don't like email that much because I think oftentimes it's not worth it. It's not worth your time or worth your energy. So we said 
If we're going to write a weekly email, it better be worth it. And so every Wednesday, you're going to get a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. It's some of my favorite and best writing that I do every single week. And it's such a blast to share it with such a strong and robust and growing community of leaders. So if you want to get on the Worth It Wednesday email list, you can sign up at pathforgrowth.com or by clicking the link that's in the show notes. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.